The integration of behavioral and physical healthcare is more important than ever as healthcare organizations work to increase access to essential treatment. On this episode of Moving Medicine, independent physician practice experts share their experiences integrating behavioral health into their practices. I think a good place to start with your behavioral health integration journey is um, start from a place of curiosity and also recognize that um, you can renovate your house room by room. You don't have to do the whole house at once, right? And so uh, the first step I might recommend would be to really assess your status. Uh, You know, um, a situational assessment of what you currently are doing is incredibly important. That's Dr. Jan Boylston, a pediatrician at Burlington Pediatrics in North Carolina. She's joined by Dr. Alexandra Capito, a licensed child psychologist with a specialty in pediatric and health psychology. Dr. Kathleen Blake, Vice President of Healthcare Quality at the AMA, leads this conversation on effective BHI strategies for independent practices. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the AMA. This is Dr. Boylston. First, I'd like to just kind of talk to everyone about the the needs of our community. And, uh, you know, a lot of things, I'm sure, um, uh, you know, this is true and resonant of not just our uh, of our uh, location, but also uh, nationwide. You know, COVID-19 in terms of behavioral health is really um, kind of turned our practice um, upside down in terms of uh, you know, revenue, visits, the type of visits, uh, and, and we've had to adjust and, uh, and, and flex quite quickly. Um, COVID-19 has also revealed a lot of the socioeconomic disparities as well as the healthcare disparities. And uh, especially in terms of vulnerable populations um, that we serve, um, as well as created barriers to access to care. And we know this, um, not just anecdotally, but also from quantified data. Our practice uh, just um, completed a survey of our practice population and of um, 613 respondents, we were, a- we were able to really get a pulse on socioeconomic stressors, the concerns that patients and families have uh, going forward. Uh, and uh, two of the questions that I'd like to highlight here, uh, one question was, I'm concerned that my children show signs of, you know, being depressed, being anxious. Uh, those are not uncommon concerns. And the majority of parents who responded have concerns about behavior. And um, secondarily, uh, I'm concerned that COVID-19 will have long-term effects on my children. Approximately a third of parents did not have concerns, um, but over 40% of parents have concerns that COVID-19 will affect their children's long-term mental health. And so uh, we are uh, here to really talk about independent practices, uh, which are truly healthcare small businesses. And uh, I, I think it's really important that that organizations, partners, insurance payers, you know, when interfacing with independent practices like ours, uh, admittedly, it's really obvious who gets it and who doesn't get it, um, and to really understand who we're about, some of our strengths, but but as well uh, as um, some of the realistic constraints that we operate under. And so some of those um, strengths would be, you know, we're a really agile and flexible organizational structure. It's quite flat. And so things can be implemented quite quickly. We can um, improve um, operations fairly quickly. You know, um, uh, PDSA cycles are fairly rapid. Uh, We can get data extracted fairly quickly. Uh, We also have tremendous community influence. and then that comes from a lot of the longevity of our providers. You know, I'm one of the newer uh, physicians at our practice, and I've been uh, with uh, with the practice for 12 years. And we um, have several uh, providers who have been here 25 plus years. Um, you know, some over 30 years. And so that's very meaningful in really laying down those deep roots within our community, um, as well as gaining influence uh, with with our community. Um, and then the practice culture. I think that when you have, um, you know, a high-performing team, um, that in some ways it can be sustained and amplified a little bit. Excuse me, a little bit more successfully than maybe with very large um, hierarchical uh, hierarchical organizations. Um, and the flip side of this, we also have significant constraints. So um, we are quite a lean organization. Um, and just for reference, you know, our um, FTE to provider ratio um, as of February 2021 is 3.6. 
And so there isn't a lot of um, fat build, built into the system. And because of that, uh, you know, everything has to have a direct line to, um, to revenue, to expense. Um, and uh, consequently, there's very little room for error uh, and no room for failure, clearly. And, and so we have to be very cautious about the projects or initiatives that we undertake. Uh, and um, as a, you know, and secondarily to that, um, the return on investment must be realized really quickly. You know, we don't have um, years to really see the outcome or profit, uh, profitability of, of an initiative. Um, and um, we also have very limited economies of scale, um, which is pretty important. So why are we on this journey? What have we um, gained from this journey? I, I think some of these things are uh, probably universal um, across the healthcare spectrum, but these and, and some of these are actually quite unique, I think, to independent practices. And so for patient care, I think it's incredibly clear, uh, really irrefutable that integrated behavioral care is uh, is a win for patients. Um, you know, you achieve continuity of care. You really reduce information gaps that can happen um, with multiple um, care providers in the patient's um, care management. Uh, you minimize errors for risk or medication um, errors, and you improve access to care. Uh, and um, lastly, you really reinforce the role of the medical home, uh, which we um, celebrate. And in terms of provider satisfaction, I, I think it really, having a, a strong, um, robust, integrated behavioral health program, it reduces cognitive burden on providers because the need is there. Um, so it's not that you're not encountering it as a provider. I, I think if you have productive mechanisms and channels um, to be able to, to um, gain access and, um, and, and help your patient, I, I think that actually is incredibly uh, beneficial to the provider. Uh, and there's also you know, interdisciplinary support um, that we uh, really value within our model, and it really improves patient engagement. And so uh, you know, for a provider, I think those are incredibly meaningful um, meaningful measures. And as far as financial stability, you know, this is a little bit of the wild card for independent practices, um, but the benefits would be really diversifying your revenue streams. And so behavioral health is certainly in demand. And so being able to provide these services um, is, is a strength. For us, um, the, the fact that we have um, an in integrated behavioral health program, that was a key component of of our um, package to our um, private insurance um, uh, negotiations that we completed in the past year, and really to use to use that as leverage to demonstrate that we really do provide comprehensive whole person care, um, and ultimately result um, in cost savings for the whole system, including for the payer. Uh, and then the other thing that really affects financial um, stability is uh, patient fidelity. You know, when patients are connected to your practice, they recognize you as being the the first. Um, stop for all of their healthcare needs, then that helps um, prevent some of that bleed that can go to urgent cares or other practices or going straight to a, a specialist. Uh, and, and so I, I think in a lot of ways you can realize some benefits. And so um, uh, our mile markers on this journey, it's actually, uh, you know, it, it's still a work in progress. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think we've been on this journey for quite some time. And uh, these are just a, just a sampling of some of the things that um, I think should be on, you know, that we, uh, you know, celebrate. These are a lot of our successes. And, um, and I think it's important to recognize that our journey is not prescriptive. It's going to be incredibly um, unique to each organization. And, um, but, you know, I, I think these are uh, just some good examples of the accomplishments that we've had and how they've meaningfully, um, you know, shaped our mindset or helped instill some useful, uh, some some useful um, tools for our practice. So in 2012, uh, we participated in Project Launch. A uh, Project Launch uh, was a SAMHSA uh, grant um, that was provided to our practice to implement. Um, uh, behavioral health within our uh, practice. And so that grant allowed us to have a master's level psychologist, 
a family navigator. And uh, we really give credit to Dr. Hillary Carroll, uh, one of my partners. Um, she has had a longstanding vision um, for our practice in helping to provide early childhood mental health and now evolved into just general behavioral health uh, for quite some time. And I think participating in this, um, in this grant funded uh, program really helped um, create that culture of awareness. It also allowed us to train um, you know, kind of staff-wide um, on Triple P. Uh, Triple P is the positive parenting um, program model. And so it really helped us um, kind of learn the language, uh, which was incredibly helpful. Um, in 2015, um, we had a team take part in the Clinical Quality University. Uh, this is a, a professional development program by the North Carolina Medical Society. And it really helped us form kind of the, the team approach to quality. So how do you... Um, pilot an idea, how do you measure outcomes? And then how do you continually, uh, you know, how do you, how do you continuously improve? And so really pilot measure and improve was an incredibly uh, important feature that would be, um, uh, you know, that we derived out of that program. And um, in 2017, we also applied for and received uh, a grant for Project Ice Cream. And the Ice Cream grant is um, sponsored by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And um, it's really designed to help practices uh, not just implement screens, but have actionable workflows on what to do with those screens, right? I mean, everyone, um, I, I think intuitively, it seems easy to implement a screen, but really the, the true crux of it is, what are you going to do with a positive screen? And, um, and so this really helped us systematize behavioral health screening um, and to respond to them in a meaningful way for our practice. Um, and in 2019, uh, we uh, recruited Dr. Capito. We were just so thrilled for her to join our team. Um, and I think that some of the plans that we had had really started to take off um, with her um, helming our behavioral health team. And um, so since um, she's joined us, uh, one, not only has she had to navigate COVID and this absolutely um, just, uh, you know, the, the, the demand um, explosion for behavioral health, uh, but also, uh, you know, this has allowed us to, as a practice, really build those clinical workflows. Um, and a great example of, of this is we just had uh, a great meeting yesterday, um, practice-wide, you know, with uh, nurses and managers and um, other providers uh, to, um, to really develop our um, suicide safety plan for our patients. And our, uh, you know, challenges certainly are many, uh, and um, these just highlight maybe just a snapshot of some of the things that we've experienced, and I'm sure that um, others out there um, who are participating um, certainly may, uh, you know, this may resonate with them. And, and you know, the, the challenges are um, on several levels. Um, you know, one is how do you implement a standardized, or just it, when implementing behavioral health in your practice, you know, how do you promote standard practices and policies while also ensuring that, that there's space for, um, for each provider to practice their own um, style as well as their preference. And uh, across the spectrum of our providers, you know, we have um, newer providers, very seasoned providers, uh, providers who, um, you know, have um, varying strengths um, and interests. And so how do we get everybody collectively across the finish line? I think that's a big challenge. Um, and again, what to do with those positive behavioral health screens. Uh, we find that when you integrate behavioral health, the, the behavioral health encounters don't come from defined behavioral health visits. Every visit turns into a behavioral health visit. Uh, it's very routine for a physical um uh, appointment to really kind of shift gears and turn into a much more comprehensive behavioral health visit. And, uh, you know, other um, kind of pain points that we have are, you know, when we kind of meet the threshold of our comfort level with the patient, you know, how do we expedite and access um, services within our community in order to escalate care? And so we're actively building those bridges and um, connections uh, to, um, to facilitate this, but this is an ongoing challenge. Um, and then certainly scheduling challenges um, that, you know, these aren't the quick, um, you know, upper respiratory infection visits. Uh, you know, they take a lot of care, time and sensitivity. Um, and how do you meet the needs of all the patients remaining in the day, but also address the concerns um, of the patient um, 
you know, right in front of you. Uh, as far as, oh, and uh, the other points that, um, that we'd also like to highlight, and Dr. Capito can certainly speak to this, um, with COVID especially, uh, that has just really opened up a box of its own challenges. Uh, one, the increased demand. Uh, it's also really complicated the integration process because of the COVID protocols. Uh, we've also been really limited in our community um, resource base, um, just because a lot of our area, area um, therapists were not accepting patients during, um, you know, kind of the peak times of COVID. And it really made warm handoffs quite challenging. And we found that warm handoffs were incredibly vital to helping the patient feel comfortable in in working through behavioral health because it comes from their trusted provider and primary care provider to Dr. Capito. And so, uh, you know, with some of the restrictions that's been hard, um, but, uh, you know, I, the um, care team has been really um, successful with virtual handoffs and Dr. Capito can speak to that as well. Uh, the other challenge, um, you know, that may apply to some of the folks out there, uh, we also have three locations and Dr. Capito is one person and Miranda, our care team leader is also one person. And so it makes it somewhat challenging to be able to um, deploy resources um, across all, all locations. Uh, and then the tips that we have. So we um, actually have several tips and we're certainly learning too, um, but these are some of the ones that we kind of humbly offer to the other practices that are interested in doing some of this work. Uh, we would recommend really developing the financial models early on. You know, during our um, project launch um, uh, grant cycle, you know, which was two years, we uh, actually did a lot of shadow billing, uh, meaning we just kind of modeled, okay, if, if we were getting paid for these visits, how would we do this? What would our reimbursement look like? Uh, and that was really important for us to make the argument that this is financially um, sustainable, uh, you know, once um, the grant ended. Uh, and, and we were able to, to transition off the grant fairly smoothly. And also to include the behavioral health codes and contract negotiations. Um, as I mentioned, uh, last year we um, completed negotiations with five of our um, private payers. And one of the first things we mentioned, you know, in our ask was these are the codes that we need um, covered in a, um, you know, in, in a, in a really robust way on par with our other codes like, you know, the E&M codes um, for us to consider your proposal. And then also sharing progress with stakeholders. Um, and as you can tell, we, we love to tell our story and that's no different from our from sharing our story with our community partners. And we find that when we share our um, successes, it really helps our practice too um, in order for others to engage. Um, this includes uh, the clinically integrated networks that we're a part of, you know, such as, um, you know, like UNC's um, Health Alliance, um, North Carolina has its um, CCPN, um, as well as the North Carolina Pediatric Society, the Medical Society, and it really helps us engage with other people who are like-minded and to even uh, further improve our, our um, program. And uh, we really like these um, serendipitous conversations or what I might call happy collisions. I, I think building in room for that really helps uh, innovative ideas um, come through. You know, for example, um, one of our other partners, Dr. Um, Page and I, we uh, took part in a um, mini psychiatric um, fellowship program for uh, for primary care providers um, it's called REACH, um, sponsored also through the North Carolina um, Psych Psychiatry Access Line, NCPAL. And as, we're, as we were talking, we're like, you know, uh, we've really enjoyed these case presentations and studies in our group. Why don't we do that for our practice? And so we're actually implementing a bi-monthly um, case presentation where one provider uh, uh, discusses a case uh, or presents a case and other providers, our um, care team leader, Dr. Capito, we all have this like multidisciplinary input into how to manage that patient's care. Uh, and we're really excited about that. Um, as well as marketing to your patients, you know, the, um, uh, you have to tell your patients what you offer um, before they seek it somewhere else. And so that's been a really important part. And some of this might not be, hey, you know, we have these, um, you know, we have these programs, it might be through a video, like an educational video, those um, tend to work out really well for our practice. And um, you're able to find those on our um, Facebook page. And, and lastly, engaging all members of your practice. I think this has been something that we've particularly been, um, uh, been good at. And this includes everyone in billing, um, all your nurses, because they're the ones who are 
you know, scoring the surveys, administering the surveys. And a lot of times they're the ones who have a good pulse on, you know, uh, seeing they're the first to encounter the patient and see exactly what their concerns are, um, as well as the management team, all providers. And so uh, making sure that your behavioral health program is not compartmentalized is a really important um, is a re really important component of success. And so these are um, some points that I really wanted to share with others. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I recognize that we as a practice have been incredibly fortunate. Uh, we have strong leaders um, and we've really been blessed with a lot of opportunities um, that frankly, many other deserving practices may not have um, access to. Uh, but really, I, I think a good place to start with your behavioral health integration journey is um, start from a place of curiosity and also recognize that um, you can renovate your house room by room. You don't have to do the whole house at once, right? And so uh, the first step I might recommend would be to really assess your status. Uh, you know, um, a situational assessment of what you currently are doing is incredibly important. Or you might want to ask your staff, and this would be your front office staff, you know, what services do patients ask for most that we don't offer? You know, you may not ever get wind of that because there's no appointment made for those things, right? They might, you know, they might just hang up and say, okay, I'll just, you know, seek care somewhere else. Um, and, uh, you know, another option would be to survey your patients and families. Uh, you know, like like we have, um, that, that's been incredibly um, helpful just to gauge, you know, exactly how our community is, is doing. Um, or it might come from a place of um, assess your behavioral health pain points, you know, talk to the providers, get them together and see what... What is a repeated frustration that you have about, um, uh, you know, about the current situation, right? Uh, another um, recommendation might be uh, assess your current behavioral health referral patterns, and that'll help you recognize where the demand is, um, but also where other patients might be seeking care. Uh, and a lot of that is just information gathering. So I think that's an incredibly important place to start. Uh, another um, recommendation would be to grow your culture. I, I think a lot of the things that have made us successful in our behavioral health journey, it, it's actually derived from other things. It, it actually is derived from, you know, uh, when we were um, uh, working towards our um, patient-centered medical home uh, accreditation, you know, a lot of the language, the shared language around quality, around, you know, how do we do this work? I think really the foundation was laid there, uh, you know, uh, train your team, you know, triple P, any sort of general like behavioral health training opportunities, uh, not just for providers, but also for your management team, other um, staff that you have. I think that's incredibly important, um, as well as identifying the champions, you know, who's really going to be the spark plug for your program. Uh, and, you know, that's something that um, every successful program needs and, uh, and, and form that work group. You know, Dr. Capito and um, Dr. Carroll and Miranda, they actually meet weekly. Um, and that's, I, I think that works really well. Um, and certainly Dr. Capito can um, speak to that as well. Uh, you know, other parts of um, things that you can do today would be to activate your network. And by that, I mean, reach out to your local behavioral health community. Um, I, I, you know, our experience has been when we reach out, people are more than welcoming to, you know, they are so thrilled to have us engage. And this has been true for our uh, local school system and the school nurse, you know, uh, Dr. Capito is engaged with them on, hey, there's going to be a lot of behavioral health needs out there. And you guys are aware of that. Um, but here are some things that I'd like to share with you. Uh, we've also engaged with, you um, with our um, CPS team locally, because we tend to interface a lot um, for, for, you know, um, uh, un unfortunately that happens to be a consequence of some of the behavioral health work and some of the situations that, um, that we learn about. Um, also see what other practices are doing. Um, you know, in North Carolina, we're quite fortunate because uh, one really robust independent medical practice um, community, uh, but also a lot of great support um, through the Pediatric Society, Medical Society, um, and then we've been just really fortunate um, to benefit from that. And then uh, lastly, build that framework. Um, so, uh, you know, for us, it um, really, uh, you know, we love the, so NCPAL is a statewide um, psychiatry access line. And so it's it's not for patients, it's for providers. Um, and I love that um, Dr. Uh, Jerry Madsen, who is just wonderful, uh, she's actually providing some helpful um, and very useful um, links and tools. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, a, a, a consultation line that is really helpful about, you know, here's the situation. 
um, and I'm, uh, you know, and I'm not exactly sure about the medication management, what might be some options that I have, you know, so it's been incredibly uh, valuable for me personally, and I know for many um, other providers in the state. Um, and also think about, you know, negotiating your contracts, because that's a very critical component of making this successful for the independent practice. Um, and then for us, uh, the other component that's been really important is the IT infrastructure, um, and specifically um, our telehealth platform. Uh, currently, our patient um, visit volume uh, is about, it's just slightly over 20% um, is accounted for by telehealth. And, and so, and um, during the, um, uh, you know, during parts of COVID where just, um, you know, having people in the office, the positivity rate was so high that we really, um, you know, couldn't risk that, um, that uh, essentially Dr. Caputo was um, seeing all her patients via telehealth. And, and so um, that was really a lifeline for a lot of our patients, but also for our practice as well. And so our vision, uh, we actually have a lot of things, you know, we, we like to dream big um, and we know that some things have to be in digestible bites. And th I think this is where we're really looking forward to uh, North Carolina Medicaid transformation, uh, really the value-based journey where, um, you know, hopefully practices like ours will be recognized and hopefully, uh, you know, the things that are meaningful, but not just a classic visit encounter will be um, appreciated. And so we have a lot of different things that we'd love to get um, in the works. Uh, one, um, maybe the more urgent need would be to increase the capacity of our behavioral health team. Uh, we'd love to add a, um, an LCSW um, or, you know, a licensed certified um, a, a clinical, a licensed clinical social worker. That would be great. Um, we've talked for a long time about offering these um, virtual education sessions. Uh, I think that would be um, a really welcome um, opportunity for our patients. Um, that includes, you know, everything from like a toddler tantrum series to um, social media safety for our adolescents. Um, we'd also like to implement group therapy um, for chronic conditions um, and, and our vulnerable populations, including the LGBTQ um, community. We've really recognized um, the need um, uh, for, for this, and, and we hope to strengthen the work going forward. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, really partner and align with our school system and community organizations uh, to coordinate services. Uh, and lastly, uh, we would really love to build in-house care management capabilities. Uh, we feel confident that this is something we could do really well, and it would be highly compatible to uh, really just bolstering our behavioral health program. Uh, this really isn't easy work, um, but I, I think the clarity for all the providers out there is really you know, it comes from, you know, what can I do to help the person sitting in front of me? And I think these resources or having this at your practice has been really invaluable as we continue to work and improve um, on, on, you know, on what we do. So, and, and really, um, I, sorry, I have to say this, um, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I certainly don't consider myself an expert. I think I'm a pure learner like everybody here, um, but this is just something that we wanted to share. And um, Dr. Caputo and I would love to um, take questions. Um, but also, I, I just really wanted to thank um, the BHI Collaborative, as well as the American Medical Association. Um, I can't tell you how thrilled we were to, to have the opportunity to join you today. Um, we're always just so um, humbled and, and thankful when our work is recognized. Um, and so thank you for, for this opportunity. So Dr. Capito, we haven't heard from you yet. Um, but it sounds like this is a pretty substantial load on your shoulders. Um, and I did see and was not surprised to see the need to expand the number of behavioral health providers um, in the practice. So talk to us a bit about your journey to this practice and your your assessment of the way things are now and the way that you'll evolve over time? Great question. Um, and Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for that presentation. I think it was great to see kind of historically how the practice has gotten to where it was with the timeline there long before I joined. Um, so I, um, in graduate school, had a placement in primary care um, and I was actually the first behavioral health clinician at that practice. Um, and so kind of had some opportunity to do program development in that role. And that opportunity really kind of made me kind of fall in love with this work to see how, how much primary care really reaches those children and adolescents that would otherwise not never show up in a specialty mental health um, office. So really kind of access 
um, to behavioral health care is kind of my passion. And so it, it has been, um, you know, a great journey <laughs> so far. COVID has made it um, interesting with the, with the volume. Um, so what, just from the research on primary care behavioral health and my kind of training in that area, um, what we know is the ratio of providers to BHC behavioral health consultants um, that works best is typically um, kind of one BHC to every three or four providers. Um, and so like Dr. Wilson said, um, we currently have 13 providers and then just me um, and over 16,000 patients. So kind of coming in, we knew that. We knew that I was not going to be able to meet the demand in a normal world, um, but then you throw in COVID and the demand has been very high. Um, and so I think that that has been the greatest challenge this year is um, how do we um, kind of navigate that in which patients you know, do I prioritize versus referral out, refer out when maybe that referral network is not quite there. Um, and so, you know, that that's where kind of our next steps here are to kind of expand and to meet that need. Um, when I first started, I um, went around, <laughs> this is before COVID, obviously, but I introduced myself to different practices in the area, got to know the therapist, got to meet some of the child psychiatrists. And that step was really valuable in kind of creating those um, referral networks in those kind of mutual um, beneficial relationships. And it sounds as though it, um, from the way you're describing it, network, it takes a village and to realize what else it is that you have um, that your patients um, can access. Um, because like we say, you are just one person. And I assume that occasionally you take a day or two of vacation. So, um, so Dr. Boylston, um, one of the questions that's come is um, really about finding qualified behavioral health clinicians. Uh, obviously, you found Dr. Capito, um, but talk to us a bit about how you see um, the engagement of what we might call a broad range of people with different types of licensure into the practice. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this, um, this is quite the journey. And I think that, uh, you know, when, when our project launch um, grant ended, um, our uh, behavioral health specialist at that time, you know, that we're very close to, she actually went on to take, um, uh, take a position with um, like childhood developmental services agency. And so we were thrilled for her, but that kind of left us, you know, with, um, with that need. And it was incredibly difficult. You know, we are in a place uh, in general, it's difficult to recruit providers because Alamance County is not, um, it's not really sexy when you compare it to, you know, Raleigh and to Charlotte and to the larger cities. Right. And so I think we really have to, um, make the case for what makes our community special. And that's, that tends to be a really big part of how we recruit, um, you know, all providers, including physicians. Um, but, but it's definitely been difficult. And, you know, and Dr. Capito just, uh, it, the stars were aligned, you know, um, uh, she has, uh, you know, family in the area and she really embraced, uh, you know, working within a, an independent practice. And, and, and so I, I think we were incredibly fortunate that way. Um, but it, it, it was a, a struggle um, getting to the point of meeting her. And so maybe to follow up on that, um, another question that comes up has to do with, as you're at times having to refer patients outside of the practice that both of you are in, um, can you give the audience some suggestions? How do you close the loop? Oh, yep. Um, I, I think that's um, certainly a challenge for everyone. Some of the things that um, that I've found helpful and, and certainly for the practice, um, and, and I think this was a, a part of the um, your first question, uh, you know, the part of the reason why we would love to build out our program is that, you know, for a lot of our um, patient needs, like Dr. Capito is wonderful, but, um, you know, we really want her to work at the top of her license. And so, you know, we would love to have more of the spectrum of behavioral health support. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, varying um, expertise and, uh, and experience could be really helpful 
um, to see as part of a really well-rounded behavioral health team. Um, so that would be one. Um, two, you know, one of the things that we found before Dr. Capito was that even when we did um, encourage patients to seek counseling, uh, a lot of those, you know, just don't get followed up on, right? And so you see them next month mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, wait, you haven't gone yet. Tell me, you know, like, what can we do to, to help this, you know? And, uh, and you know, just with behavioral health, it's incredibly challenging to get information back. Um, you know, even when we do the referral, uh, you know, oftentimes the, the patient has to sign that, that medical, um, uh, you know, authorization for us to receive information. And I feel like that makes it really challenging to stay connected in their behavioral care uh, when it's done outside of the practice. Um, what I love about having Dr. Caputo is that her notes are all within our EHR. And uh-huh. so, you know, I can access, oh, this is, um, hey, you know, Dr. Caputo, ta- um, you know, uh, she, um, you know, taught you like some of these things, um, you know, at the last visit, what do you think? How's that, how's that going? And really, I think when you're able to reference that way, it really shows um, the connectivity of the team it really makes the the patient and the family feel like, oh my gosh, they really do know what what they're doing, um, you know, which is good to build nice. that confidence. And uh, the other thing about, um, you know, starting, even when patients start counseling with Dr. Capito, uh, you know, our model is essentially, you know, you can have about six visits. Um, and then if you would benefit from continued visits, then um, Dr. Dr. Capito will recommend a community therapist. But um, in general, we find that once you're engaged in therapy, you're much more likely to go on out and, and um, engage with a therapist in the community as well, um, because they've experienced it. They know what it's like in a very um, controlled um, environment like our practice. And so we, we do find that um, it, it's been incredibly helpful to help the patient really um, you know, sustain their work. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Dr. Capito, I'm going to pitch the next one to you, pinging off of what Dr. Boylston just said, which is, so you may be seeing somebody for, let's say, six visits, and then make that community referral. It's how you do that warm handoff to the community, but also within the three practices that are part of the larger pediatric practice? That's a great question. Um, So typically what we do is we huddle in the morning and kind of review schedules and identify potential patients for me to see that day that are on the provider schedule, whether they're coming in for a well visit or for some behavioral concern, or even, you know, um, a, a big part of this is also helping patients with, you know, chronic illness or um, diabetes or um, picky eating, you know, kind of more of those general health concerns too. So anyone that has any kind of behavioral health need in the morning, we actually identify them and then, which may or may not come through. And so then in the moment, the provider will come, um, if I'm needed, <laughs> will come grab me and I'll um, walk back in the room with them and we'll kind of make a treatment plan together, uh, which is really valuable um, when that can happen. Again, one of our challenges is I've been um, so busy that we haven't really had that um, flexibility. You know, we'll I'll still get a couple of warm hand drops per day, but not. Um, I would I would love to be able to do more of those. Um, just because, again, I think when that provider in the room transfers the report to me, my job is so much easier because because this is a provider that this patient has known and trusted typically some since birth. And as Dr. Bolson said, perhaps even their grandparent went to this practice. You know, so thinking about transferring that report of me saves me so much time and energy in building that. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times um, the idea of seeing a psychologist is really, there's a huge stigma there. And so I, one of my main goals is to kind of um, destigmatize that and get them willing to see a therapist in the community um, to see, to kind of just say, 
you know, this is about wellness and everyday problems. It's not about, you know, being crazy or um, any of those stigmatizing language. Um, and then in terms of, I try to put a referral in, I mean, I'll try to give the, or the patient some information on who I'm recommending they go to, um, which is increasingly challenging because with COVID, I can't keep up with who's accepting new patients, whose wait list is. Um, and so then our referrals department will also assist and call the patient and family. And um, our lead care coordinator, Miranda Fox, um, she has a ton of experience in this area. And so um, she really goes over and above to kind of connect with that parent and make sure that they've gone in. And it, it's patient dependent. Sometimes if I, if it's a patient that I really have concerns about <coughs> connecting, I will schedule another follow-up maybe two months down the road just to check in to make sure that that was a smooth transition. Um, and I don't always do that if it's a parent that I kind of feel like, okay, they're going to, I know that they'll go. If that makes sense. So I'm going to, thank you. And I'm going to shift gears a bit because one of the questions has to do with um, how comfortable pediatricians, I would say in your practice, Dr. Boylston, are prescribing psychotropic medications for children and uh, adolescents. And um, related to that also has to do with prescription of buprenorphine. And so you talked about sort of a comfort level that people have. So tell us a bit about your practice's comfort level and how you then use that to decide about referral, let's say to a child psychiatrist. Great. Uh, we, um, you know, we've been comfortable prescribing um, controlled substances for ADHD uh, for quite some time. And so we, we all, we have a basis for some, um, you know, behavioral health uh, medication management and, uh, you know, primarily we'll prescribe um, SSRIs um, and, and to, to varying degrees, I think the vast majority of our um, uh, providers do prescribe uh, and some are a little bit more comfortable um, initiating um, others are more comfortable, you know, once they have um, a, a stable regimen or have tolerated it well, they'll continue, um, uh, you know, continue uh, monitoring and management. And, and so it's not uncommon uh, for, uh, you know, someone, so for some of us who are a little bit more, um, more comfortable and experienced, you know, we might um, be asked by a different provider, hey, you know, I, I saw somebody for a, a physical um, and we talked about this, but, you know, she really needs to talk to somebody or he really needs to talk to someone. Is this something you would feel comfortable with? So I, I think having, um, having support among providers and being able to talk about this and, you know, in, um, in, in, a, in a very supportive way, I, I think that helps a lot. Uh, but I mean, on some level, there is a little bit of, well, you know, I, ideally we would hope that everyone would be able to access things most um, uh, you know, in the most expedited way possible, but, you know, that works for us too, right? And so being able to find somebody who, who might, um, you know, feel a little bit more comfortable and, and we're continuing to build our skill set. So I think that's also a really important part of the work, you know, as I mentioned, um, and Chelsea Swanson, thank you so much for sending or um, sharing that link with us. Um, but, um, you know, our providers have taken part in the uh, mini, um, you know, psychiatric fellowship, and it was just an incredibly useful program. I think providers in general tend to be a little bit more timid, um, and so a, a lot of the program, I think, for me, uh, the value was building confidence and also recognizing the need because I think we don't want to delay care because of our personal discomfort. And I think that you know, when when you feel a little bit more comfortable, um, it's a little bit easier to recognize. Wow, you know, we, you really do need help. At this at this time so i don't think it's visible to the whole group but you've actually gotten a shout out uh, from someone whose kids are taken care of in the practice um, for 17 and 13 years and um, the quote which would be music to anybody's ears mm -hmm. is your care is superb love hearing about all the fantastic work that you are doing and so it's that kind of message from a family member, from a patient um, that quite frankly makes it a very uh, satisfying profession. So this person who sent it to the panelists, um, you've reminded it, 
us of that beautifully. Thank you so um, much you for sharing that. Yeah. Maybe give us a bit more detail about how you use the behavioral health codes. You mentioned negotiating for them specifically with the payers. And um, I think the word you used was um, that you could almost tell right away whether a payer that you were negotiating with, whether they got it or they didn't. So talk to us about both aspects. Oh, sure. Um, and the, the codes, um, you know, they're um, essentially the, the counseling codes primarily that Dr. Caputo uses, as well as uh, survey tool codes. Um, and, and we can certainly follow up and, and share those. Um, you know, with, with contract negotiations, it takes a lot of stamina. Um, and it's interesting yes. because when they approach an independent practice, I, I think sometimes they assume that we don't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, market comps or industry knowledge. Um, but, you know, things like knowing, uh, you know, the, the practice down the street, you know, we have some idea of what they're getting. And this wasn't, you know, just in terms of just general ideas. And so recognizing that, uh, you know, unfortunately, there isn't any transparency um, to these negotiations, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but for us, you know, it actually helped that, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we utilize consultants when, uh, when we negotiate contracts specifically for this reason, so that we can feel confident about um, kind of market comps, our area. And, and so we can go back and say, you know, um, I know that you recognize this as a small practice, but actually here is, here are the alternatives if, if we lose your panel of, you know, of patients, here are the options that they would have. Uh, and so being able to do that, I think gave us an incredible, uh, an incredible amount of leverage because it showed that we, we did have some, um, some insights. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I think has been a, a positive outcome um, with the 2021 CMS, um, the CPT code changes, has been that because there's more of a priority on time and complexity, I think that's highly conducive for um, behavioral health management because, you know, a lot of times there's no physical exam. Um, I mean, really required a lot of it is very much patient education, time together, and certainly the complexity. And so I, I think that's been um, something that's reinforced, hey, this is something we can do meaningful good work and get compensated in a fair manner. So actually a question has come in that relates to that. Um, have you found that every visit being a behavioral health visit, and no surprise during COVID, but I think if there was one quote about COVID, that would be it. Um, is it altering the amount of time that the pediatricians are spending with each patient and what is that how do you manage your schedule um absolutely and and i think that if it's the wild card scenario that's really um difficult because if you knew that every visit really was going to take 15 minutes more than you projected well that would be easy to account for in your schedule but it's the visits that you think are going to be fairly smooth that kind of throw you off. And the next thing you know, there are four people waiting, um, you know, and then you just kind of get that panicked feeling. Um, I, I think it's definitely something um, that we're getting better at. And, and actually, I think the warm handoff is an incredibly vital part of that. Um, or being able to say, hey, this is really important. Um, let's do this. Can you give me a little bit more information? And so for patients, I might say, you know, I, I, um, I recognize that. Can you um, fill out this survey for me? For so, for a kid, it might be, "Hey, can you fill out a, a scared survey?" I understand, um, you know, the anxiety. Let's see if we can get more information on this. And how about we do a telehealth visit in a couple of weeks, um, and we can review this and discuss it further. And I find that patients in general are very receptive to that. Um, and I think we need to uh, kind of move away from the mentality that. Um, you only have one well visit a year and you talk about the six things, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you resolve all six things at that visit. Um, and so really, be, I think the one thing is I've gotten much more comfortable about um, staging the plan, right? So let's get this information. Um, let's meet back up. Um, there are a couple of other resources I'd like to provide you in the meantime. You know, and for kids, it might be, hey, let me get uh, my uh, one of our nurses to and who's trained in triple P, you know, we can provide some information on the tantrums right now. Right. So let's read through that. We'll give you some resources and then we'll meet back up. And, and so I, I think that 
for a lot of um, situations can be really helpful. Or, you know, for Wednesdays, I love Wednesdays because that's when Dr. Caputo is in the office with me. I'm like, can you hold on a minute? Let me go see if Dr. Caputo is available and let's see if she can just meet and say hi. She's busy. So she's just going to come and say hi. This is not going to be the full um, session with you, but um, meet her and then let's develop a plan. I'm going to pitch the next question to Dr. Capito. Um, and two parts, really, but I think we can blend them together. It has to do with um, how you manage that. Gee, Dr. Boylston's in the office, it's Wednesday, and she calls you or asks you to come in when you're seeing a patient, um, do you limit the number of interruptions that, so people know if you're getting bombarded? And then secondly, talk to us a, a bit about telehealth and how you are using it, not just now, but like when we're past COVID or the worst of it, do you think you're gonna be using it as much? Those are great questions. Um, and to clarify that what Dr. Wilson said is I will do a billable visit with that patient in a warm handoff if I have time. And that's one of the ways I manage it is I, um, I try to do an introduction if I can. And one of the things I say is please do interrupt me um, that because I want to be available kind of for the physician. I think kind of my primary goal and primary and in primary care is to be a consultant to the provider. I view them as my client. Um, and so I want mm -hmm. to help them as much as I can. That being said, when I am busy, I will just stick my head and say, hi, let's get you on my schedule. Um, and so then they'll have that kind of um, planned visit. But uh, in, if I had a no-show or if I have flexibility in my schedule, um, then I will see them. I had been, I see patients every um, only for about 15 to 20 minutes. And so I had been trying to schedule only one patient an hour and then take warm handoffs. But again, with COVID, I've had to schedule every 30 minutes. Um, and the other thing um, to mention, I was just thinking about the billing question before. I also bill health behavioral codes. So I do the psychotherapy codes if there is a um, if there's a psychiatric diagnosis of any kind, including just an adjustment disorder. And then if there's not, let's say constipation or sleep. Then I do those healthy behavioral codes. Unfortunately, we haven't consistently had those covered by insurance. So that's been one of our barriers, um, but we're working on that. <laughs> Hopefully, I think more insurance companies are coming around to those. And those can be in shorter increments of um, kind of 15 minutes or even um, some wiggle room in there. So if I do a briefer visit, those codes are really nice. That was Dr. Young Boylston, Dr. Alexandra Capito, and Dr. Kathleen Blake on effective BHI strategies for independent practices. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.